0: When in church, if you would take a copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Genesis this morning, the book of Genesis chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50 this morning. Growing up, when you would watch TV, when I would watch TV, I remember vividly uh, several times where a TV announcer would, would break in with a statement to what I was watching. We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you this important message and at times it would be a presidential address. At times it would be the news of a national tragedy. For me, uh, for those of you that are around my age, I-, I can sort of vividly remember being on the living room floor when this happened with the uh, Challenger shuttle explosion and seeing those, uh, those, those images that continue to, to stay with me. And so whatever you're watching in that moment took a back seat to the importance of the news of that day. And so for those of you that are visiting with us this morning, maybe this is the first time for you to be at Dawson. We are eight months approximately into a series through the gospel of Mark that I feel that the Holy Spirit has led me to sort of preempt this morning. We'll come back to Mark's gospel next week. But this morning, I want us to focus our attention upon the word of God in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the 50th chapter, Genesis chapter 50, this past week, Danielle and I took our three boys, and we have a tradition in the life of our family that the night before they go back to school, they start school on Wednesday, we, we grill steaks, and we have a time of just prayer for our boys Danielle has these index cards that we've had for years, which has a, a Bible verse that we're praying over their year, over their uh, semester, their goings, their comings. And so we ate and we had great conversation. We were talking a lot about their football teams that they're playing on, uh, going back to school, some of the, the question marks that they have about that. Uh, realize that many of you are college students, some of you are college students, and you've moved back into the dorm and starting back to school. That morning of last week, Danielle and I had the privilege to, to scoot over to Edgewood Elementary School, where she is one of the part-time teachers at Edgewood, and we, along with some other ministers from churches in the Homewood area, were able to pray over the staff and the administrators and the teachers before they went back to school last Wednesday. And it was interesting just to be able to visit with some of those uh, teachers, because this is going to be a year like none other for teachers. Uh, Some Parents have chosen to do virtual completely. Uh, everyone's doing some hybrid of in-person and virtual elementary schools going back uh, five days a week in many communities here. And I was talking with some of the teachers, and some of them are, this is their first year to teach. And could you imagine being a first year teacher going into the midst of the uniqueness of this time here? And what has just dawned upon me this last week was sort of the the way that this COVID-19, this pandemic has just sort of magnified uncertainty around us. It doesn't cause things necessarily as much as it magnifies and accentuates things that uh, could have potentially already been there but it just gets magnified. So if there was a marriage prior to this pandemic that was strained, there's a magnifying glass that has been placed upon their marriage in the midst of this racial strife at a national level. There's nothing new to that, but it's just been magnified in the midst of this. Political polarization, I mean, you just read American history, uh, that is not new within the American narrative, but it just gets magnified in the midst of this time here. Loneliness, depression, is magnified in the moments uh, that we're facing right now. their are families, individuals that are just teetering on what feels to be financial uncertainty, financial collapse, and just gets magnified. There's no denying that we're in the midst of a, of a great health crisis. But it seems to me that one of the challenges that will be with our country, with our state, with our communities for years to come is the emotional and psychological crisis that many people are facing. A great degree of alienation and loneliness and even depression has crept into the lives of of so many people. And I'm trying to to figure this out and how do you take steps that are proactive forward? And so all of this was in my mind on Tuesday night and I just could not go to sleep. Which is really, really rare. Some, Some people are night owls here in our church. I'm just not one of them. Uh, If you have, I sit at the couch, it's nine o'clock, I'm going to sleep. It's just how I'm wired when I get up early in the morning. And so I couldn't and dozed off, woke back up, try to go to bed. And midnight turns into one o'clock, one o'clock turns into two o'clock. And I'm just mulling over. I'm worried. I'm thinking about all of the uncertainty before my own three children thinking about what a lot of our church members are facing, some of the things that, that so few people know that they're wrestling with and it's just, it's just before me and I'm trying to sort through it. So in that moment, I just, as I was trying to sleep, I just raised my hand to, to the Lord and I just said, oh, how we need you, Lord. Lord, how, how, how we need you in the midst of the hurt that people are facing, in the midst of the confusion that people are facing, in the midst of the loneliness that people are facing, in the midst of the worry that people are facing, in the midst of the sickness that people are facing. Oh, Lord, how individuals need you, how families need you, how our nation needs you to cut through this thick fog of clutter and confusion that seems to envelop all of the dialogue and discourse around us. And in that moment, I heard no audible voice, I come to you not with a a private revelation that I received from the Lord, but it was just the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his reminder to me of the word of God that is an anchor. The word of God that reminds us of the anchor of God's sovereignty in the midst of uncertainty. In that moment, I begin to mull over the the story that's familiar to many of you here this morning, the story of Joseph that begins in Genesis chapter 37, that culminates in Genesis chapter 50. It really is one of my favorite Bible stories in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite Bible stories in all of the Bible. It it starts with uh, the story of parental favoritism gone awry. Jacob has his sons, but he, he looks upon Joseph. He, he uh, cloaks him with this coat of many colors, setting him apart from the other brothers. He effectively makes him a supervisor in the midst of the field where his brothers are working hard. And you can begin to imagine how his brothers would have resented Joseph. And resent they did. And that resentment turns into homicidal thoughts. And so in Genesis chapter 37, we just meet Joseph, and then ultimately his brothers uh, conspire to throw him into a pit and to leave him for dead. Judah, one of the brothers, comes up with another plan and says, well, maybe we could make some money off of him and sell him into slavery. Midianite slave traders happen to pass by. They pick him up out of the pit. They sell him into slavery. And if you're following along in the story, you get to Genesis chapter 39, and Joseph finds his way as a slave into the Egyptian hierarchy of of Potiphar's palace. Potiphar is an Egyptian official of Pharaoh's governmental regime. Potiphar has a wife. His wife takes a, a liking to Joseph, propositions Joseph. Joseph says, if, if I was to, uh, to, to give in to, to say yes to what you're offering, ultimately I'm going to be dishonoring your husband. I'm going to be dishonoring God. Joseph was a righteous man. He resisted the temptation. And what he gets for that is that he is falsely accused of assault. Potiphar comes in and says, you don't belong in my palace. I'm throwing you into the prison. So he's made his way from the pit to Potiphar's palace, falsely accused into the prison. And it just so happened to be that while he was in the prison, that there there are two officials of Pharaoh's, two two regime officers of Pharaoh. One is the cupbearer, one is the baker, and both of them have dreams in prison. And wouldn't you know it, that this Hebrew slave who was falsely accused is in the prison is able to interpret the dreams. Well, one dream didn't end well for the baker. He dies. But Joseph was able to say, guess what? You, the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position right there with Pharaoh. Well, guess what? Pharaoh gets him out, the cupbearer, out of prison. But Joseph remains in prison, left and forgotten. And it just so happened that Pharaoh can't sleep one night. And When he goes to bed, he begins to dream and the dream he can't interpret. He calls all of the palace guards together and all of his officials together and says, hey, can you interpret this dream for me? No one could. The cupbearer says, well, I remember somebody in the big house who interpreted my dream, let's see if he can do it. So there's Joseph. He's restored into the palace. He interprets the dream, and the dream is this, that there are going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of want. There's seven years of feast, seven years of famine, and then Pharaoh says, if I can have one person who would ultimately lead the Egyptian response to what you have dreamed or you have interpreted of my dreamed, and so Pharaoh becomes or appoints Joseph to become the secretary of agriculture. So all the land, that ancient Near Eastern world, is in the midst of a famine, Over two decades go by, 20 years go by, and Joseph's brothers are reunited with him. Now he's in this great place of position. He's got the prestige. He's got the power. They don't recognize him. Well, of course they wouldn't. The last time that they saw him, they had sold him into slavery. Decades have gone by. The last place that they thought that they would see their brother is there in Pharaoh's palace. He messes with them. There's no other way to describe it. He sort of plants in them, trying to test if they have changed since then. He makes them go back to their father's house, and they have to leave Simon because he wants to see, are they going to betray Simon like they betrayed him when he was 17 years old? And what Joseph begins to see is they have changed. Well, he has changed, Joseph, because God has been with Joseph in the midst of the uncertainty that he's faced, in the midst of the dire circumstances that he's faced. God has been with Joseph, but God has also been working in the background of his brothers, and both Joseph and his brothers have changed. Come to the very culmination of the story. They've reunited, reunited with tears and surprise. And Jacob, Joseph's father, he dies. And it's in this moment that the brothers begin to whisper to themselves, this is the chance that Joseph has to get us back. Genesis chapter 50, where you've turned, starting in verse 15, we read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave the command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your, the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Would you underline verse 20? Would you start, would you put italics by it? Would you put an exclamation point by this passage that I want us to ponder and the implications of this passage for your life and for my life? Because what verse 20 reminds us of this morning that I want you to hold on to is that the story of Joseph is a story for us today. This is a truth. This is a truth that I want you to cling to that what God allows, he always redeems for our good and his glory. In the life of the believer, what God allows, he always redeems for the good of the believer and for his glory. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Everything that God allows isn't always good. everything that God allows isn't always good. The pit is not good. To be betrayed by your brothers in this homicidal fit is not good. To be sold into slavery is not good. To be falsely accused and thrown into prison is not good. To be left for dead in prison is not good. But the story of Joseph is the story of a God who was with Joseph in the pit, with Joseph in Potiphar's palace, with Joseph in the prison, and with Joseph when he restores him to a place where he uses him for the good, not only of Joseph, but of all that ancient Near Eastern world. What God allows, he always uses for our good. In His glory, Genesis 37 through 50 is just this extended Old Testament illustration of a powerful point that Paul makes in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 28, a passage I know is dear to your heart and that you hold on to. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that God causes everything to happen and everything that God allows and God causes is good. He doesn't say that, does he? Paul says he works together for good. Evil, my friends, is real. Sin, my friends, is real. And so we need to be careful to understand that death and sickness these are not god's edenic design for your life nor my life betrayal in the midst of a marriage that is not good that is evil. It's not God's design for marriage. Abuse and addiction, that is not God's design for the family. Jealousy and envy, that is not God's design for friendship. Dishonesty, manipulation in a business partnership, it is not God's design for the workplace. Injustice experienced by any citizen in any community is not God's design for human flourishing. So our response to the evil around us, the uncertainty around us, the clutter, the, the disunity, and disharmony around us is to understand that there is real evil. And we grieve, we mourn, we pray, and we work against the spread of evil. We are believers who not only pray, but we work for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a heavenly pattern that we pray for it to be realized more fully here on earth through the faithfulness of the work of the Spirit in your life and in my life. So we don't, we don't just sit back passively, and say, well, it is what it is. It is what it is. Nor nor on the flip side, do we look at life's challenges and the circumstances, and, and nor do we say, hey, let's just think positive thoughts. Let's just put on a happy face. Turn that frown upside down. When life gives you lemons, May lemonade. I don't think there's been anything. I, I really don't think this is an overstatement. One of the cruelest false teachings that has infiltrated the church in these past decades is, is this emphasis upon the power of positive thinking. Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Shuler, harmful teaching because it obscures the source of true hope. What the Bible offers to you in the midst of confusing days, what the Bible offers to you in the midst of a pandemic, what the Bible offers to you when you don't exactly know how your semester is going to play out, what the Bible offers to teachers and to professors and to parents and to husbands and wives that are wrestling with the stresses that are unique to this season, what the Bible offers to the single person who is, is, uh, the, the, the circumstances today have accentuated a sense of loneliness and alienation, what the Bible offers to you isn't the power of your positive thinking. This hallmark, cliche garbage. But I tell you what the Bible offers. The Bible offers you the power of an infinitely good God to redeem any and every situation. So our anchor, our anchor as Christians, when we're blown to and fro with the circumstances around us, what anchors us in place is the truth of God's unending sovereignty. That what he allows in the life of the believer, he always redeems for our good and for his glory. This is the robust power of the gospel story that Jesus himself has gloriously displayed this very truth in his life because he has traveled through the pit of betrayal. He was betrayed with the kiss of one of his own followers, Judas himself. He has traveled the road of, of being falsely accused as he's faced the injustice of, of trumped-up judicial charges against him and the lashes against his back. The agony of undeserved punishment, our Savior has met it himself. And our Savior upon the cross has faced the greatest of injustices, the greatest of human evils, cosmic evils, as he died upon a the cross. There is nothing good about that evil. Except in the irony of all ironies, every year, millions of believers across This world, we gather to celebrate what Friday? Good Friday. The irony of our God who can take the worst of injustices, the death of God's perfect, human, eternal. God, man, and and purchased through his death, our salvation, purchased the salvation of any and every person who would trust him for the forgiveness of their sins that was purchased by the blood of Jesus upon that cruel, coarse Roman cross for you, for me, for all who would turn to him. This is our anchor. This is our anchor that no situation no situation is beyond God's transforming power. So, harm has, can, and will come your way. Disappointment has, it can, and it certainly will come your way. Betrayal, circumstances that overwhelm you, we're the cause of them at times in life through our sin, through our negligence. And, and we're the recipients of them at times, at the negligence and the sin of others around us. And it feels in that moment if these 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 disappointments and circumstances they break us, they shatter us. They crack us, and we contribute to this. We receive this through our life's situations. But what we need to be reminded is that even the shattering of the pieces of our life are not beyond God's redeeming work. If you go to Barcelona, one of the acclaimed artists that you're going to immersively see as you walk the streets and the parks of many places in in, in Barcelona is is the work of, of Gaudi. And what he specializes in is taking the shard and the broken pieces of tile and the shard and the broken pieces of pottery And he transforms them into works of art that are seen and enjoyed by millions of tourists, millions of of citizens that flock the streets and the parks of Barcelona. They're immersed in this way that this artist can take the broken shard pieces and intricately place them together to create this mural, this mosaic out of broken pieces. Life will break all of us. Circumstances will break all of us. But the good news the good news is of a divine artist who sovereignly picks up and dusts off every shard and shattered piece of your life and my life that is caused by circumstances and at times caused by us. And he beautifully restores them into an image for our good and his glory. So I ask, will you rest in that sovereign truth? Will you rest in that sovereign truth this very week as you reflect upon God's character, that he is good, he is just, and he is sovereign? Will you rest upon this truth as you engage him in his word and through prayer? Will you rest in this truth as you surrender your fear and your anxiety to him? And sometimes just like me at two o'clock in the morning, you've got to lift your hand and say, I need you, oh, I need you, how we need you, our nation needs you. At times we must get on our knees and we surrender our fears. We surrender our anxiety. We surrender trying to control the, the fitting together of the circumstances of life, understanding that we are not enough. It's outside of our control. But there is one who controls all. So we rest as we realize that he is a good God and we reflect upon his character. We rest as we engage him in his word and prayer. We rest as we surrender to him our fear and the anxiety of our tomorrows, and we trust him. We trust him with our tomorrows. Even when we can't see beyond the curve of our todays. Do you know? Do you know a God who, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what comes your way, He allows for your good and for His glory? You can rest when you know that truth. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you seeking your rest. There's some newness in the sanctuary this morning. Students that are going back to school and it looks different. Teachers that are teaching in ways that they never have in all of their career. Athletics that feel different, that has a, a tone of uncertainty before us. There are real health issues that, that are pronounced in many families that are here. They're there stresses of, of, of marital vows that feel as if they're in stretched to the breaking point parenting has, has felt harder for so many that are here than it has ever felt before. And so it's today that we turn not to ourselves to say, hey, we're going we're to make this a good day, but rather to turn to you and to rest in your sovereign assurance, May we reflect upon your character. May we engage you through the power of your spirit and your word. May we surrender our preoccupations to you and your sovereign will. May we trust you as you guide us in the uncertainty of our tomorrows. We thank you that you offer us that rest through your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.